Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna, I'm a senior fellow here at the Fund and I'm going to be your host for the next half an hour or so. I'm honoured to be joined by Dr Partha Carr, who's a consultant in diabetes and endocrinology at Portsmouth Hospital's NHS Trust, as well as Associate National Clinical Director for Diabetes at NHS England and the Getting It Right First Time Lead at NHS Improvement. Partha, welcome to the King's Fund podcast. Thank you very much for the invite. Uh, pleasure to be here. So we're going to be talking more about your career journey and your work on diabetes later in the episode. But first, to start us off, I understand that you're a massive fan of comic books and that you've actually produced a comic for people with type 1 diabetes. So my first question, just to kind of get you in the mood, is if you were a superhero, a real-life comic book hero, what would your superpower be? So, ironically, one of the most favourite characters for me in any comic books has been a character called Nick Fury. What I've always liked about that is that he's a person without any superpowers, Mm -hmm. but he somehow manages to get a lot of people with superpowers together to form a team. And if you look at the comic books or any of the movies that have come since, it shows the importance of what that can achieve. And I tend to try and take that into real life. So, you know, not completely taking the analogy forward, but if you see what I try and do is any events, I try to get a lot of people with diabetes together and somehow it seems to work together. Uh, But if I had a superpower, um, uh, probably the way the whole NHS is, uh, glimpse into the future would be very, very helpful. And there are superheroes with those sort of power. That would be extremely useful to have at the present moment. Amazing. And your answer to that just sounds like the perfect answer to an interview, like a proper interview question for a job. (laughs) So you currently hold a range of roles, including your posts as uh, at NHS England and NHS Improvement and also your consultant role in Portsmouth. Can you tell us a bit about your career journey and what led you to where you are now? Yeah, so I did a lot of my training in the Midlands and then eventually settled on the south coast of England, finished my specialist training in diabetes endocrinology and uh, took up a consultant job in 2008. 2009, I did my first management role. So one year in, I became the clinical director of the department, uh, probably a lot by default. um, And it was, I wouldn't say baptism by fire because I had really, really good supportive colleagues. But... It was an experience builder in those days, and um, after that, in 2010, came the new NHS, the Health and Social Care Act. That changed a lot of things. So that was interesting in the, being in the middle of that, with CCGs yeah. and everything being formed, etc. Then over the course of time, I've continued to do my day job and um, finished my clinical director job in 2015. Uh, started doing a bit of national roles, mm-hmm. which was not quite related to NHS England, but it was more about taking some leadership roles in, uh, for example, NHS diabetes in those days, uh, the day before it all got amalgamated. 2016, middle of 2016, uh, I joined NHS England as one of the Associate National Clinical Directors, mm-hmm. took on certain portfolios, and then 2017, there was the getting it right first time role, seemed to sort of work together. So it's been a very uh, interesting journey, portfolio career, so mm-hmm. to speak. But in the middle of that, um, I've also actually worked beyond diabetes in community trusts. um, And that was more as a role across mental health. um, And also worked as a secondary care advisor to a CCG, uh, which was Ascot and Bracknell CCG. 
And I suspect a lot of the reason for doing those bits and parts of roles was just to get some experience before taking on the national role. Yeah. I would say that's held me in lots of good stead mm. along the way. So you're one of the few people actually that I've met that talks about the Lansley reforms as something that you kind of ran towards as something interesting rather than ran away from, mm. which is um, fascinating. And then in terms of the, the extra roles that you've done beyond diabetes, you know, the community trust roles and the secondary care advisor to a clinical commissioning group, was that something... I know you're saying it's helped you in your national role. Were you were you aiming for that national role? Is that why you took those, uh, no, those additional I, uh, responsibilities? No I, uh, no, I wouldn't say that. I, I think it was... So my fundamental belief, uh, even when I started my role, I, I never quite understand the concept, or still haven't, as to why a diabetologist has to be a hospital diabetologist or a community diabetologist. Yeah. I have always said, and I continually say that in national role, the term community diabetology is a bit of a tautology. You know, a hospital's part of the community. Yeah. And when I see these roles advertised, I've never quite understood the point. Yeah. And to test the theory, I took on the other roles to see what actually goes on in the community. And I think it's been part of the learning experience. It's also been when you're sitting in a hospital, it's very easy to say the CCG didn't do this or mm. the CCG didn't do that. Doing that role, the advisory role was probably about getting a sight of the challenges they have and you know diabetes is just a fraction of what they do mm. so it was more about learning yeah. uh, I don't think it was specifically aimed at being a national role it mm. was more about uh, believing that a diabetologist could be wider great and I understand that you spent the first seven years of your life in the West Midlands true yes. uh, and then you moved to Kolkata in yeah. India where you did most of your education and then began your life as a junior doctor in a mm-hmm. hospital there yep. So how did you find training abroad and then coming into the NHS? So the interesting thing about Calcutta is that uh, even though uh, India attained independence in 1947, Mm -hmm. the medical system is a replica of the British medical system. Uh, It probably doesn't, or at least when I was trained, didn't have the level of technology at that time. But the training courses and the exams we go through are pretty much similar to how the British system works because that's what the British had left behind. So even the medical colleges are named still after the way the British had left it. And as a result of that, the training wasn't very different. Mm -hmm. What was different is awareness of a bit more advanced technology. So simple example would be even to get a chest x-ray in the middle of Calcutta was very difficult mm-hmm. when I was training. Here yeah. it would be very simple. So simple example, but training-wise, there wasn't a huge amount of difference. Yeah. But uh, when I came here, I still did what in those days was known as a clinical attachment. So you do an unpaid job for, it's like shadowing, for six months. And it was, you, you were not hands-on, yeah. but you shadowed a team. And uh, was that a requirement? Here, um, pretty much was seen as something that would be encouraged okay. before you took on a job, which I think was a good thing to do okay. uh, because new system. Yeah. You know, you knew hours, different ways of working. And I did that in a um, hospital called Wordsley Hospital, which is a very small hospital. And it was just nice to sort of see what the British system was like. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. So moving from your training to the NHS workforce more broadly. Um, so you might be familiar with our recent report looking at possible solutions for tackling the growing workforce shortages in health and social care. I was really interested to read a piece that you published in the BMJ last week where you took a slightly different angle to the issue. So you were looking at the responsibility of senior staff such as yourself to the next generation of staff coming through the system and you were talking a lot about pastoral care and the importance of that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you meant there? 
Yeah, I probably would start off by actually congratulating you on the piece of work you mentioned because I have read it and I do read the King's Fun work. Awesome. And uh, <laughs> and it does resonate if I'm very honest because my personal view is it's very easy to criticize everybody else, but I think we should go into that particular stage after we have sorted our own backyard out. And as consultants, we have got a lot of power in the system in spite of what people will say so. Mm-hmm. We got a lot of influence. And the biggest influence we have is what we have in our next generation. Um, I personally find it difficult to believe that consultants do not have the time to have a kind word for a junior, for our generation next. Um, I am busy enough, but I take a lot of pride in uh, trying to nurture the next generation. So in Portsmouth, we have been very lucky to ensure that we have a steady stream of trainees picking up endocrinology. In fact, our latest colleague used to be an SHO, then she became a registrar, and now she's our consultant colleague. And we're trying to do the same with the next generation. I have always been fortunate to have consultants who, in spite of being incredibly busy, had the time to just say a kind word, yeah, buy a coffee. It doesn't take a lot of time to do that. So pastoral role, I think, is very important. The majority of healthcare staff are there because they want to do it. Yeah. And they will give you extra. And that's, that's what draws them towards it. But to make them feel wanted is a skill. And I think that's part of what we should do. So as far as the workforce crisis goes, yes, it is there. Yes, there's an issue. And it's a worldwide issue. It's not just the NHS. But we can do a little bit to make the generation next feel a little bit happier in their job. Yeah. And it's interesting to to hear you talk about the solutions that come from within the workforce itself rather than, I, I guess, start feeling powerless um, in terms of making a difference. Yeah, I mean, there are little things yeah. which does make a difference. You're absolutely right. We can talk about the junior doctor's contract that is mm. very emotive, etc. But I've always said, and that's what I kept on saying in the blogs I write, the junior doctor's contract issue and the emotions that brought out was also about something deeper. It was not just about the contract. It was yeah. about how they were valued by everybody. So I think we need to be cognizant of that and uh, you know, try and reflect that in our day-to-day practice. I, I don't think it happens enough. Yeah. And that would be my view. And I'm glad to hear that um, you were saying on, on your way up when you were earlier in your career, you felt that people did have time for a kind word and a coffee. Do you feel that, that something's changed that means you're writing about that now? Do you feel the culture has changed? Oh, fundamentally, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people still do it, but the numbers have changed. Right. There's no question. Um, one very good example I would give you is that I make it a point that if I'm doing a weekend ward round that the breakfast is bought by me. Uh, now, for me, that was just common and yeah. normal when I was growing up. Nowadays, when you do that, it's seen as a massive surprise to the junior doctors. And that shouldn't be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you thank them after a ward run or buying them coffee or whatever. Um, so I find that slightly um, interesting. At the same time, it's slightly disheartening that it's become much more rare. Yeah. Uh, that that's, you know, become the way it is. Uh, it shouldn't be. Uh, are we busier than our predecessors? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been in the same NHS now for 20 years. We're all busy. Our predecessors were busy too. Mm. So, so what do you think has changed? I don't know whether it's a generational thing yeah. or whether it's just a society thing. We we are the whole system seems to be much more angry. Yeah. Um and you you get that everywhere. Is social media a good thing for that? I think it's a double-edged sword mm. where you see that all the time people are very angry about everything mm. and <laughs> uh, people don't talk about it in the right or the more happier things don't quite mm. come out. There are lots of good things that happen in the NHS every day even day to day. 
So I think that that's what's changed uh, a lot. And I understand it's the pressures, but it just seems a bit more angry than everything else. Yeah, and a lot more polarised. Yeah. So in a different BMJ piece, I saw you write that the NHS is not Disneyland, but neither is it Mordor. Mm. And that the more you explore different areas, the more likely it is that you'll find your niche. If you enjoy your job, everything else falls into place. Can you tell us what you enjoy about your job in particular? I enjoy it full stop. Um, I, and I, it's not even a rhetoric. I mean, you can come to my department anytime. Uh, I'll give you one example. I've come here and today was a day when a couple of our nurses baked me a cake which has got an Iron Man on top of it um, because they just wanted to say thank you. Uh, there was no need. So it was just none. off the cuff? Just off the cuff. And we do that as a team all the time. That's you know. Um, and uh, we have fostered that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, we would, because, for example, if there's a job advert coming up, we will go and bat for the nurses ourselves as consultants. So it works both ways. I really enjoy going to work mm-hmm. in Portsmouth. And people have asked me that question. So, for example, would you go higher up in NHS England? Um, no, I'm quite happy where I am <laughs> doing what I do. And I'm very happy to fall back and just do my day job. Oh, that was going to be one of my questions later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so for me, I think it's, I've been a registrar there. I've been a consultant there, I'm now there for 10, 11 years. It's a really lovely place to be part of. Mm. And uh, again, it sounds amazing, but I would ask anybody to ask our juniors or our admin staff or our healthcare assistants what they feel about working there. It is a really happy place to work in, and I really love that. That's great. And for those of our listeners who are working in the NHS and might currently be struggling um, in terms of, you know, workforce pressures and other things, struggling to enjoy their work, do you have any advice for them about how to find enjoyment? I think there are some specialties which are far harder pressed than the others. That's the reality. I mean, I do not believe for a second that I, as a diabetologist, am more busy than a general practitioner or somebody who's doing emergency medicine, or a pediatrician, that yeah. sort of specialty. They are swamped. I just think as a system, we should do more for them. Uh, uh, just make their life a little bit more easier, somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how. Um, um, whether that's work-life balance, or, or what we can offer them, whether it's a differential pay, whether it's more holidays, I yeah. don't know. But I think we need to do something, and there's always this debate, should it be differential? I think some specialties deserve that. Um, for today's world is about a lot about work-life balance and my only advice to them would be try and dissociate yourself from work when you're off work find yeah. a good set of friends and just get off the whole barrage of social media work around you email just completely disconnect go and enjoy your time with your family your dogs whatever you got just switch off uh, it's very difficult to do in the modern world yeah. and but that's the only advice i can give people and just um, to push you on the pay differentials, path of car setting pay, mm-hmm. um, which specialties would you pick for that? Um, front door. I know it's a broad term, front door, but got a lot of respect on time for uh, emergency physicians yeah. and what the work they do. I absolutely would not be able to do the work they do. Um, and I don't even say it in a light way uh, because... On the very few occasions I have walked in, when the hospital's overflowing, I look at what they do, and I do think they deserve a differential pay to, let's say, what I do. Uh, I I do an outpatient specialty. I do community work. Yes, it's important, Mm. but it's not as heavy, top-loaded as what they're doing. Uh, Again, general practitioners, I would say I would probably say primary care as a whole needs a different way of looking at what they do because... It's such a big workforce gap, and we need to do something to help them out. But Mm. as I said, my first pick would be emergency physicians. 
Great. So I'm now going to ask you a few questions about your work on diabetes and also your work on digital technology. So looking at where we're at in terms of managing diabetes, it seems like we're on a journey. So shifting from a focus on a medical model to one on prevention. I wanted to get your view or your assessment on where you think we currently are at on that journey. How much progress have we made and what do you think needs to happen next to make sure that we finish the journey? So if you look at type 2 diabetes, where we're talking about the major majority of people and talk about prevention, I think the steps that have been taken are very ambitious. It's the first of its kind in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue is people are feeling their way around it. Um, and uh, there's a lot of debate about what's the right intervention. Is it about face-to-face? Is it about digital means? Is it just about the type of diet? And that's the whole debate that goes around in circles. One of the big determinants, and if you look at data, is actually hinges around socioeconomic divides. Yeah. And I think we tend to forget that because I'm always caught up in a debate when people, there's, there's a lot of evangelism about diet right now. Mm-hmm. And people will come and say, why don't you support one diet? And I've got a very, very straightforward line, which is the best diet in the world is the one you can afford, you can tolerate and sustain. Mm-hmm. And of those three, afford is a big thing. Yeah. It is very easy to say somebody that you should have bacon and avocado for your breakfast. But when you're standing uh, in you know one of the food banks and you're getting a tin of beans, you're not worried about the carbohydrate content, you're just happy to have some food. And that is the fundamental issue to tackle when you talk about prevention of cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes. So taking a step back, I think the approach that the NHS England team of diabetes have taken is, okay, we're trying the face-to-face, we're trying some digital means, we're trying calorie, low-calorie diets, and I think we're trying to gather the data to see how, which one works best. Mm-hmm. But the fundamental thing we're really focused on is saying, how do you make sure these are targeted at the group of people irrespective of the socioeconomic yeah. divide? And that is a big piece of the work which everybody's right now wrapped into. And on that... How well is the state doing in terms of levelling up the social economic divide? So that's a broader question as to where politics is taking us as a country. And I think there's lots of data coming out that the the gap seems to be widening. And there is, for example, if you touch upon technology, let's say, I'll give you our example in type 1 diabetes, there's good evidence the upper middle class, white, affluent, have got more access to technology than the ones who are not. So just saying to us give us more technology, is not the answer. Yeah. You're just making the better a little bit more better. And the worried well. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I'm really interested in the stuff you've been doing on TAD Talks and your comic book on type 1 diabetes. Can you tell us a little bit more about those initiatives? So the TAD Talks is was quite simple actually um it's not quite ted talks but <laughs> the idea was that how would it be if we got a few people with type 1 diabetes to stand up and just tell us what life is about mm-hmm. and it's a mixture of people who have achieved some amazing stuff like people who have walked around the arctic circle mm-hmm. to people who are just daily lives a mom yeah somebody's a teacher and over the course of time it's grown and the idea is that you open it up to an audience and just let them speak so this year we had a mixture. We had James Norton, who has type 1 diabetes, and it was quite good fun to have yeah. him there. And then we also had Amy, who's somebody who is trying to be a biomarine engineer, was talking about her life. And I think it's the idea is to also inspire people that don't worry, mm-hmm. you can have a completely healthy life, you can have a completely fantastic life. It depends on the challenges. And for me, any chronic condition mm-hmm. is hinged on peer support. Yeah. And that's what TAT Talks is about, getting people together. Peer support 
is probably the best way you can improve chronic conditions. The medical model doesn't work, and every single data set will tell you that. And it can't, I guess, because it's, it's ultimately limited in terms of how much contact it can have with people. Absolutely. If you look at data, it's actually of a person's life. Mm. The contact with a healthcare professional is 0.02%. Yeah. How, how are you going to change their lives in that time? That is impossible. No medical model can solve that. So long-term condition is hinging mm. and will hinge on peer support, a bit of self-management. And that's what TED Talks is all about. And just both of those, you know, the, the TED Talks and also the comic book seem to me another example of how you take your role as being more than just this kind of hospital-based consultant. You're reaching out into populations and doing a much more population health approach. Yeah, I mean, the comic book is a very good example that came from talking to somebody who had type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. I still remember the conversation I had. Uh, she was a 17-year-old girl who said that uh, I think type 1 diabetes is a bit like a superpower. And I said, explain that one to me. To which her response was... It's a bit like the Incredible Hulk, where you've got a power you don't really want. <laughs> but then you have to learn to live with it. Yeah. And then you find other people who have got the same power, but you spend your life trying to get rid of it. And so she helped us develop the comic book, the first one. And it was fantastic. So that was the whole concept, that it's yeah. a superpower I don't really want. Uh, and I think that's the way uh, it's been seen. And uh, the comic book has been a lo- lovely forum to sort of you know engage more people, look at it in a different way. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's about great. it. So you're also really active on social media and I checked your Twitter profile out this morning and I saw that you have 100,000 tweets, mm-hmm. um, which I, I need to get moving on my Twitter profile because that is amazing. You also have your own blog. So how does social media help you achieve your goals? A double-edged sword, mm-hmm. I would say. Uh, it's taught me a lot. Yeah. I think it flattens the hierarchy. One of the big things which I encourage a lot of people with NHS England and NHS Improvement to do is I think you need to show a human side yeah. as a policymaker. And I think be very open that I cannot do everything. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the expectations we set, which and when those expectations are dashed, that's when people get angry. In general, people appreciate the pressures you work towards. And I think you show a human side. You know, I've got a family, I've got a dog, I like comic books, I like John Wick and all that sort of stuff. And I think people relate to that, that, okay, he's just a human being. And I also am very open that I've had a bad day at work mm. or a good day. I would encourage a lot of policymakers to do more of that. I think people hide behind those roles yeah. and they don't show their normal self. Uh, my, my personal experience is people respond much better in a much more respectful way if you're open and honest and say, I'm trying, but I can't deliver everything. That's such a fascinating point, just the idea of, of opening yourself up so that in some ways by making yourself more human, it, I think people do find it harder to attack you or criticise you because when you're just a role you're just a role. Yeah, and I think you also need to push back. So if people say something which is fundamentally wrong, then I think you can say, no, I I disagree because this is what we try and this is the pathway. And I think that's important because what happens a lot on social media, people say X, Y, and Z. All of it are based on facts. Mm -hmm. But if you don't push back, this is social media. It becomes a fact. Mm-hmm. It's often repeated. And that's the whole world of the fake news and everything. So you need to challenge some of the rhetoric when people say X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And I think that needs to happen very clearly. Uh, and we have done that a number of times when people, for example, say, in some cases, unfair. So people blame the clinical commissioning group. And you say, no, it's not true. Yeah. This particular one, it's not them. And so from your perspective, it really is important not to let things go on some points. Yeah, on um, some points, I yeah. think uh, I, I've got, I draw a very, very firm rule on abuse and yeah. anything like that. But I think if there's factually something wrong I spot, I yeah. will challenge that. 
So I'm going to ask you a little bit about leadership now. So can you tell us what or who has shaped your approach to leadership and who you look to for inspiration? I'll probably divide that into NHS and beyond NHS. Mm. Uh, if I talked about the NHS, uh, one person who's been a really good guide was Bruce Keogh. Yeah. Um, so Bruce came under a lot of fire with the junior doctors thing. A lot yeah. of people didn't know what actually happened behind the scenes, uh, which made me annoyed. But I've always been very impressed with his calmness around it. People forget what the man achieved. Mm. And uh, I have a lot of time and respect for him. Um, just to give you one example, when we were redesigning diabetes care back mm. in 2010 in Portsmouth, we were the first to do something different. He was the one who encouraged me. He was the one who said, no, carry on. This will become the template. And so it has. Uh, so he's always been a good guy. Yeah. Uh, I probably am nowhere near as calm as him, uh, I would say. <laughs> um, I'm much more prone to temper bursts, which Bruce, as far as I'm aware, never was. Uh, beyond um, NHS, um, there are a few people I look up to. Uh, some of them are in the sporting world. Um, so, for example, I've always admired people such as, uh, let's say, Alex Ferguson. Mm hmm uh, about Manchester United is not my favourite team, but I have a lot of respect as to what he achieved over yeah. his course of time. And it was the way he achieved. and what, how The hairdryer treatment? Well, no, I think if you read his book, it was the interesting thing I liked about him is the, how he changed his style. Yeah. So if you look through his book, there was a certain style in the beginning. Then it kept on, The only reason he kept on winning because every few years he slightly changed his style. So his style towards the first mm -hmm. core was very different to when he ended. And I think he adapted to generations and changed his yeah. style, which is what made him successful. Great, thank you. So... What challenges have you faced as a leader? Um, if I'm very honest, uh, youth is a challenge. People uh, see you as inexperienced. Yeah. Um, colour is a challenge. Yeah. Um, and I've faced that at different, different places. There is a underlying, I wouldn't say disdain, but slightly whiffy sense of what are you doing here? And that has come across in many, many uh, roles that I've done. But you in the NHS. In the NHS, yeah. yeah. But it's it's interesting to see that you know success breeds respect rather than anything else, and I see that a lot. Is that the last five six months have been different? People know you from what you've achieved, but there has been a lot that I've had to battle against uh, yeah. as we go. And a lot of people will say that. Unfortunately, youth and colour are biases, and I think I hear the same thing from women as mm. well. Colleagues who are in the same. Uh, I think I young lady doing trying to do leadership roles yeah. probably goes through similar problems yeah. uh, but it is very um, pale male and stale uh, yeah. the nhs uh, structure and uh, it's a battle trying to prove your worth and that's been that's probably been the toughest thing i would say yeah. do you think that's a systemic issue in the nhs i think that's yes it is i mean i think so i'm i am lucky or unlucky you could say to still have uh, no white hairs right i'm 45 and that's just genetic my dad is the way it was but it's interpreted as being as somebody who's young mm -hmm. um i don't know why the nhs looks at it that way because if you look at any other industry youth is you know is really encouraged yeah. uh whether it be football or anything like yeah. that it's not quite in the NHS yet. Um, leadership roles are associated with being senior. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the wrong approach. I think you, you should get more youth into it. Um, uh, colour, it takes time uh, yeah. to change. Um, and it's, it's, it's very different. There, there is a fundamental difference in the racism of, let's say, uh, Tommy Robinson and Nigel Farage. Yeah. Uh, there is something blue-collar about it. And I'm not saying the NHS is like that, but there have been occasions whereby I've faced directly from CCGs, 
comments about where I come from, understanding culture, and that's in my national role. So wow. those things uh, have been tough, but uh, it happens. Um, and I have gone back to it um, again after uh, I'm not somebody who lets things pass. But those are uncomfortable facts of the NHS yeah. that we deal with day in, day out. And that's something that is still there. Yeah. It's less, but it's still there. Okay, thank you. So you've already ruled yourself out of going much further up in national bodies, but what's next? It's, it's, it's an irony because I've seen lots of people who believe that one job is a stepping stone to another. I personally believe that sometimes it makes you compromise mm. when you do that because yeah. you're always thinking about the next step up and thereby would you compromise something in your present role to go on to the next step, mm. okay? The way I look at it um, is my pinnacle of my career was what my dad wanted me to be. So my dad sent me here because my dad used to work here but never became a consultant due to many reasons, including very clear racial bias in those days. And he, I remember saying to me, I just want you to be a consultant in the NHS. So 2008, August, was the pinnacle of my career. I'd done everything. Ever since then, whatever role I've taken on has been a bonus. And I give, that's why I give 110% to it. I'll go pretty much out there. I will put my job on the line with my national roles or any roles. I will challenge anybody because my fallback always is, well, I can still go and become an NHS consultant. Mm. So what next, I think, is an open field. Uh, I would take on any opportunity that comes along, but I'm not actually actively saying I want to do X up next. I just think that once you start doing that, you're open to compromise because somebody somewhere can probably make you compromise something to go up to the next step and I don't want to get sucked into that. Well, I hope you do stay in national roles because I think it's really important and valuable to have somebody who's not willing to compromise and who is willing to challenge. I think that's a very special thing for patients and the public and the NHS. And so on that note, thank you, Partha, for being with us today on the podcast. Thank you very much. Well, that's it from us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks as always to our podcast team and our producers, Ian Ford and Sarah Murphy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you have feedback or ideas for future episodes, then please get in touch either on Twitter at The King's Fund or my account at Helena Macarena. We hope you can join us next time.